We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know, and sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully, the justice that was ultimately delivered. Don Palumbo. Jonah Lanto. It's another episode of Midwest Murder. Yeah, yeah. Um, whew, this, I, this one's I'm, this one's new. I'm always a little like I'm damn glad to be here, but oh. it's also tragic why we're here, right? Right. It's a it's a very odd feeling. I'm I'm finding, um, like you said in, in a different episode, um, it uh, I don't know. It stays with you a little bit. Yeah. So. Uh, thank you so much to everyone who has rated and reviewed um, this little podcast of ours. Uh, the comments, the feedback, the support that we've received from our listeners has been so stinking fabulous. We um, we truly, truly appreciate it. So Jonah, what are people saying about Midwest murder? Things that make me feel good. I know. Don. It, it's, we appreciate you guys um, taking that time to, to review our little show here. So uh, from West's Best... The best from Cristenzo15. This podcast has everything. They really paint a picture of the time period, and you feel like you were actually there. I can't wait to hear each episode. The only problem I see with this podcast is that it isn't a daily thing, and you have to wait a week for the next one. <laughs> Keep up the great work. I don't know if I could handle it every day, but um, <laughs> yikes. Hey, you know what? We keep reviewing us and supporting the show, and Don and I will will quit our day jobs, yeah, yeah, and we, we will go. make Midwest Murder <laughs> yeah. uh, at least weekly. At least weekly, yeah. You for bet. all of you. You bet. This one from Remark89, my new favorite true crime podcast. I'm only one episode in and can't wait for more. Jonah and Don have such an easy conversational style. I found myself wanting to join the conversation with, wait, what? Only to have them answer my what with their next comment. The topics are, of course, serious since they deal with murder, but there are some laughs along the way. There is just the right balance of details and information to keep the story moving and the listener engaged. I can't wait for more episodes. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, man. Thank you guys uh, yeah. so, so very yeah. much. Blown away by the support we've received. And and again, if you're wherever you're listening, if you're able to rate and review, it helps uh, Midwest Murder move up the charts and does wonderful things for this uh, project podcast of ours. And, uh, and we thank you. It motivates and inspires me to do better. It does. It does. So in a Midwest Murder first, we're going international. We are going bum, well, bum, bum. and if and it's not big time international. It's just it's to Canada, so we're basically pretty similar when you get up to the northern plains and into Canada. Yeah. So we're going to Canada, and we're going all the way back to January of 1969. Queen Elizabeth was in her 16th year of her reign. Pierre Trudeau, uh, current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's father, was Prime Minister of Canada. Not a lot of people enjoy him. Um, some do, some don't. Canada was just about to legalize the use of contraception and the practice of abortion. Prince Charles would be given the title of Prince of Wales. 
the Montreal Montreal Stock Exchange was bombed, injuring 27 people. And uh, federal government in Canada passed the Official Languages Act, proclaiming that French and English were the official languages of the country. In the U.S., uh, Richard Nixon had just taken the oath of office as the 37th president of the United States. New York Jets had just defeated the Baltimore, not Indianapolis Colts, uh, in Super Bowl three, three, three. That was it. Super Bowl three. And now we're in like Super Bowl 7,000. Uh, <laughs> Roman numerals I right. don't understand. Yeah. The peace talks to end the Vietnam were just beginning and it would take another six years to completely end, but they had just started that. Um, this was also the year of Chappaquiddick, Senator Ten Kennedy's uh, horribly sad scandal that ended in the death of Mary Jo Kopechny. Mm. Um, Charles Manson and his group of disciples, known as the Manson family, uh, would start their murderous spree that summer. Alcatraz Island was seized by Native American college students in a 19-month-long protest. Holy shit, um, I didn't know that happened. Yeah, oh, it's a wild story. You should wow. look it up. It's really, it's, it's really interesting. Um, it was after the close of Alcatraz. Okay. And, and, they, and they, it, was, it was going back on a treaty back from the 1800s. It's, it's interesting, for sure. Uh, the Beatles gave their last public performance. The year of Woodstock was in New York State. And because I have to end somewhere in this wild last year of the 60s, like that's all just one year. And that's not even a portion of them. Uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus and the Brady Bunch premiered. So I wanted to end on a happy note. Uh, if you, so with this, this is. Uh, Here's the story. Yeah, of a lovely lady. <laughs> um, so if you ask Canadians which city is the Paris of the Prairies, you're possibly going to hear Calgary because of its explosive growth in the early 20th century. I thought Winnipeg for sure. Oh, hang on. Don't don't you start. <gasps> oh, okay. uh, Lethbridge, Alberta, because it's home to the Lethbridge Viaduct, which somewhat resembles the Eiffel Tower, uh, but it's a bridge. Um, so whatever. Um, who knows? I've never seen it in person. So, um, But you'll most definitely hear either Saskatoon or Winnipeg. That's the that's the argument. So Pe- People argue that Saskatoon... Is the Paris of the Prairies? Wow! Yeah, somebody even because hey, they do have a castle on a river there. I stayed. I stayed at that hotel. It's cool. Cool. Uh, even hearing the opening line of a uh, well-known song from the Tragically Hip, uh, the opening line is "Sundown in the Paris of the Prairies." Um, you'll hear two very different arguments about that song. Where the whether it's referencing you said Winnipeg, Calgary or no Winnipeg or, Winnipeg or, Saskatoon. or Saskatoon. And it, sometimes Chicago is even considered. Uh, the Paris of the Prairies. I have no idea, and um, I don't. I don't think Chicago qualifies for me. I, 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 I so. feel like Canadians would be more the Paris well, of the Prairie. They can have it. Like they can. I mean, yeah. why do we? Why do we have to commandeer they, it? They they get that. So the the line "Sundown in the Paris of the Prairies" is from, like I said, a tragically hip song um, called "Wheat Kings." So some argue that you know Wheat Kings that those are the you know those are the farmers that they. Um, they introduced like a, a, a new form of wheat and or, or something to that effect. And that's where that name comes from. Um, so that, uh, that song plays a little bit uh, more into the story than just which city is which debate. Right. Um, and so for today, just for the sake of argument, we're going to let this, uh, let the story and, and let that song, those lyrics take us to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. So in the city of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, where this episode of Midwest Murder takes place, it would uh, look like any other growing prairie town. In fact, if you live in the plains, um, kind of in the North Dakota area or the Midwest, um, you know, in the States or, you know, whether it be in Manitoba or Saskatchewan, you might forget that uh, you're, you're in Canada. 
um, just because it, it does look similar, right? It, it, lo- it looks just as much. Yeah, yeah. They, they're, it's, this is kind of our region, right? Minnesota and North Dakota are for sure almost Canada. And, I w- uh-huh, yep. absolutely. Um, it's like we're Can-Am. You know, so if I'm playing when I play video games and people hear my accent online, yeah, they assume. I, I get I've been asked if I'm Canadian. and I'm like, come on. Am I saying, hey, am I saying a over here? No, you say a boot? Hey. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, gosh. Now you're going to make fun of people. We have a, I'm not going to make fun, make fun, make fun of anybody, but don't. I watch a lot of Letter Kenny okay, and they do it on oh Letter boy. Kenny. So oh f- figure it out. You know, I don't, I don't talk like those dudes. Pitter patter. Let's get um, at her. In, Sorry. in 1969, uh, the population of Saskatoon was 122,000 and it would continue to grow, um, all the way. I mean, in 2020, it was already t- 331,000. So it's a, it's a major city, a major, uh, major player in, um, in Saskatchewan. So one of the bridges that gives the city one of its many nicknames, the city of bridges, uh, the Idlewild Bridge, having opened in 1966, was still very new. For those not familiar with the area, that bridge, um, or known as uh, the Freeway Bridge to the locals, um, it's now known as the Senator Sid Buckwold Bridge. Um, it forms a part of the Idlewild Freeway, and I really hope I'm pronouncing that properly. Um, so if I'm not, I'm, I'm really hoping someone from Saskatoon will um, correct me. I like it. It's a town dependent upon agriculture, just like many in the area. And it's uh, no stranger to booms and busts. Um, you know, mining in the 70s and 80s expanded, manufacturing increased. Um, you know, and after after World War II ended, the city entered a period of prosperity and has been there for the most part ever since. You know, so even in 1969, I mean, it's still it's still prospering. So uh, it's it's a bustling city. It's um, it's on the map, and uh, yeah, it's where our pl- our story takes place. So Gail Miller was raised in a large family in the farming community of Laura, Saskatchewan, which is about 59 kilometers or 36 miles from Saskatoon. Uh, After high school, she attended Saskatoon Technical School and ultimately got her license as a nursing assistant, um, which would probably be commonly known as a CNA in the States. So a certified nursing Mm -hmm. assistant. Uh, It's it's a similar similar thing. Um, She was a well-liked 20-year-old um, around the area, they, um, no one really had a bad thing to say about her. You know, she was, she was that all around, um, awesome person. Uh, after finishing her nursing assistant program, um, at the Saskatoon technical school, she began working at Saskatoon city hospital. And, uh, and while working there, she lived with a couple of roommates in a boarding house, just the average 20 year old. Yeah. Um, that, that's that you're, you're pursuing. Excuse me, kind of pursuing your dreams pretty quickly, sure, entering yeah. into a career. Yep, it's, yep. it's nurse, you're relevant, right? You're uh, right. You, to me, nurses have a, a higher apocalypse rating than the average citizen. You meaning apocalypse rating, like they survival they, rating? Survival for rating? Sure. Okay, Absolutely. yeah, I just want to make sure. I want a nurse page. on my team. Yeah, I, for sure on my on my apocalypse survival team. I've got a nurse on there. Sure. Well, I I believe it. But she was, she was, uh, she was living, um, she was kind of living her best life, right? So about 9.45 p.m. on on January 30th, 1969, Gail had gone to a party to see a recent acquaintance and potential love interest uh, named Dennis Elliott. After spending the evening with roommates, friends, and acquaintances, and and knowing she had to work early the next morning, Dennis drove Gail home at approximately 1.15 a.m. After chatting for a bit in front of her home, um, he uh, at about 2 a.m., he walked her to the door and walked her inside and, and left. Uh, he was the last person to have been in Gail's company. Mm. The next morning, January 31st, 1969, it was bitterly cold at minus 41.4. 
minus 41.1 degrees Celsius or minus 41 degrees Fahrenheit. See, for those of you that are doing the, uh, the conversion, we do even out when it gets to a certain temperature. I, I was mm-hmm. really confused for a second yeah. there. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's, so it's so cold <laughs> the temperature the temperature has out. now evened out between Celsius and Fahrenheit. Like that's how okay. cold it is. So that's great. and that's the kind of cold that those of us from the the area who have experienced that might say it's just a bit chilly, and but it can cause a mean bite of uh, a case of frostbite. So Why? it's cold. It I'm, is bitterly cold, I'm, and it plays a part. Don, until we started doing this podcast, I just I would have felt like there were less murders in the cold times of. The, the prairie yeah but they're but not. It, it seems just from what we've covered so far people get murdered in in the winter people get, so people yeah um, people I, get angrier i guess yeah it's oof. take that take that that ominous sign for what it's worth out right. there if you're uh listening in in the the, the wintry frozen wasteland yeah. of the midwest so at six forty five a.m gail dressed in her nurse's uniform uh left for work at, for the hospital and was bundled up, obviously it's cold, um, bundled up for a, a short walk through about 10 inches of snow to the bus stop. So while on a, on a route that, that protected her from the biting wind, because it is cold, and at that temperature, the cold, any little bit of a breeze yeah. is freezing. We established it's 41 below zero, below zero, and Gail's getting up at 645, bundling up. Like like a kid going to to elementary to school re- to recess yeah. to recess, yeah. and she's yeah. going to the bus stop to go be a nurse. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, you know, and it's it's there's a lot of snow on the ground, and um, and so she's trying to just protect herself. So she takes a little, uh, just a, a route. It's about halfway between her house and the bus stop. She meets the person who would be the the last one to see her alive. At about eight thirty a.m., staff from a nearby funeral home found Gail lying in a trampled, blood covered snow. At 8.40 a.m., detectives Jack Parker and George Reed were first on scene to find Gail's lifeless, brutally murdered body. Her white uniform was pulled to her waist. Her black coat was on, which is interesting because her, so she had taken her, she was forced to take her, uh, the top of her uniform down because it was a uniform dress. um, And then her coat was put back on. So it was on over that. Her right shoe was missing, but there was a nylon stocking and her undergarments, her underwear were pulled down to um, to her right ankle. Her left shoe was still on. Her hat and gloves were gone, and you could see her gloveless hands grasping at the snow around her. And it was obvious that there had been a, a struggle. Mm. So D- Detective Joseph Pincala, one of the lead investigators, observed the scene in its entirety and actually wrote about notes, uh, or wrote notes that were in the in the file. Gail's face was distorted. It was almost as if she were still screaming. Her cheeks cheeks were sunken and her lips protruded, which can typically show that the kill, killer's hand was likely pressed over her face to muffle her screams or cries or even grabbing her face. Under her body was a bloody, uh, a bloody knife blade that had broken away from its handle, and the missing uh, maroon handle with no fingerprints was later found in a nearby yard. Also found by the body were frozen lumps of semen that contained pubic hair that would eventually uh, be confirmed that the the pubic hair was Gail's. The frozen semen was not gathered until another exam of the crime crime scene five days later. So there was big controversy that that Uh. those... that that, um, those droplets or those lumps of semen were... um, that had an off off color to it. It was almost yellowed a little bit. um, That it was actually... uh, a common misconception that it was dog urine and it, it wasn't, it was, it was in fact confirmed to be semen. 
Dr. Harry Empson, a pathologist, uh, conducted the autopsy of Gail Miller. It was clear that Gail had been brutally raped and murdered. According to the autopsy report, Gail had been stabbed 12 times, four over the collarbone, three below the left breast, four on the back, and one on the right side. Oh, that's, that's so, so, so violent. Her throat was slashed twice, left to right, likely caused by a right-handed person. And those wounds were, were likely inflicted either right before or after death. So right after she died or right before she died, just because of the, um, uh, just the, uh, they could tell by the wound itself. So the cause of death was actually one of the stab wounds in the right side of the chest, which caused bleeding into the chest cavity. The cold um, would have also contributed to the death, to her death, because the cold was so life-threatening. An exposed, unconscious person like Gail was would have died within at least fifteen minutes. Within, within, I mean, and that's probably long. So there was a, a small amount of reddish vaginal fluid found, uh, but it was discarded after examination, even after finding sperm present. Present. So it, it was believed to be um, ejaculate, and um, did, and it was discarded. Did the investigation show, was she stabbed to death after being raped, or is it possible she was stabbed, raped, then stabbed some more and killed? Yes. That's, that's kind of what it's, that's that's, kind of what that's it's showing. The, the investigation yeah. seems to show that yeah. she was raped after having already oh, been stabbed. No, no, no. Uh, uh, raped, stabbed, and then murdered. I mean, okay. you know, um, yeah. Horrific. So, and, and just walk, walking in, in just walking, the freezing yeah. cold, bundled up to work. And it's likely dark, you know, it's 645. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's in, it, in it, January. It, right? Certainly important yeah. to note that we're not, it's not, not only bright out here until 8, 830 yeah. in, in the winter time. In the winter time. Yeah. Summertime yeah. is a different story, but way different. Yeah. So now, um, remember, this is before DNA testing was even thought of, um, but even though uh, it, it wasn't an option, it could have, that, that fluid that they found could have been tested for antigens, and it was not. That was the, that was the method back then. Um, it was not tested. It was looked at and discarded. Big bogey on the pathologist. Yeah. And then it was kind of a pissing match between the pathologist and the, and the police um, investigators. Um, and the it came down where the police investigators were like, nah, he looked at it and threw it away. So um, the investigation at that point exploded. There were over 100 officers uh, combing the surrounding neighborhoods, conducting door-to-door canvassing, interviewing as many potential witnesses as possible, including Gail's friends, family, roommates, coworkers. Um, there were 27 dry cleaners alone that were questioned to see if anybody had brought in any bloody clothes. Wow. 46 cab drivers, um, 13 of which were on duty at the time of the murder, um, questioned, uh, and that they add, that added to the total of about 361 people that were either questioned or investigated in connection with the murder. It, it's such a massive undertaking. And, and I wonder, going through all that data, mm-hmm. Is it is it just are some of these kind of well okay nothing useful here and it's discarded or you're logging that data and what if what if you've interviewed so many people you're tired you get to the right person and you're so worn down from interviewing and getting nothing I think that's why there were so many officers right you know and I mean I think I don't think we're as lucky to have that type of response now just because no, it, of the way things are so different, it's, right? It's, it's an abundance of officers, yeah, but I, yeah. you're just hoping that, that one of these interviews saw something. Oh, you've got to, you've got to have something. Yeah. And, and not, they had, they you, had found, uh, the, um, 
you know, one of the neighbors down the road had found a hat. It was uh, a bloody hat. It was likely to be to have been hers. You know, they found her shoe around the corner. They found her uh, purse in a garbage can. I mean, this it was in disarray. I, I mean, everything it was preserved well. Um, the the crime scene was there was no misconduct there whatsoever. Um, but it was just this guy who whoever did this to her just threw her shit everywhere. Right. It was, yeah, I mean, it, it, ugh. so it's a huge undertaking. Um, so by May, so that was January, by May, the police realized that Gail likely didn't know her attacker after interviewing everything. In fact, they couldn't find, they, could, they were looking for enemies, and it was quite the contrary. They could not find anybody who had any awful words to say about her or enemies, anybody who had an issue. Yeah, a stalker. Yeah. Psycho yeah. ex-boyfriend. Yeah, nothing. I mean, they, yeah. they even went through her old boyfriend, the guy, then the guy who dropped her off. I mean, they were both cleared. So prior to Gail's murder, about three months prior, uh, in the fall of 1968, there had been two rapes and an indecent assault in the city of Saskatoon. People, especially women, were so on edge at that point that on December 14th, 1968, there was a newspaper article titled, Women Given Warning. According to the article, quote, police have issued a warning to women not to talk to strangers or walk in the dark areas of the city if they can avoid it. They issued this warning after wow. two instances of alleged rape and one assault uh, was brought to their attention. They said the alleged assailant first talks to women and then takes them into alleys, uh, end quote. Then there, it went on a little bit longer. but um, So people are aware, right? So then, um, you know, Gail is then murdered in January. Community action has been has been taken. And I just want to note how entirely effed up it is that the same type of warning would never have to be issued to for men. No, it wouldn't. I, I, I doubt in the history of, of written newspapers has there ever been anything like, hey, hey, dudes, careful. don't careful at night, careful in the dark, don't don't go out, don't go into alleys or or wander anywhere mm. alone because um, you're you're getting raped out there. Your yeah. men men are being hunted and killed. Eileen Warnos, maybe. When, you know when the when 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 that whole thing was going on, it was probably pay attention. But that's probably the only the only time I right. can think of that. You know, um, but gosh, how seriously? How in, about in just not city. rape and murder women? Like why? Really? And I know it shouldn't be that easy, or it shouldn't be that cut and dry, but it should be. Well, um, it's 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 why it's arm up, carry 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 some some pepper spray on you. Something. Uh, I mean, I, careful, careful, because sometimes with with weapons, it's more like if you're not. If you're not comfortable with it, if you're not familiar with it, it's more likely to be used back on you. Yeah. So, so, just, so pepper spray works usually yeah. pretty well, but I just just, just be, be, be ready. Be, be aware of your surroundings. Yeah. You know, when it's 1969, you don't. It's a summer of love. You know, you don't. I mean, it's ugh. So summer, summer of love, winter of horror. Basically, yeah. Um, so at that point, police began to wonder after Gail was raped and murdered if there was a connection to the previous assaults, the one that that they were um, warning people about. If so, if that's the case, I mean, clearly this dude is escalating, mm-hmm. right? It's now mm-hmm. a murder. Um, so the rapes appear to be similar, but they didn't have a clear signature. And and that that those those were investigation notes. And and that that really bothers me to say it that way. Um, you know, and, and obviously Gail's was more violent. But if if they're suspecting that it's uh, if there's a connection, then there's got to be some sort of common thread if, if they were related. So I. I mean, and I know I sound like a broken record, but we have to remember that 1969 was a different time and police procedures were so very different then. And different they've, they've evolved. And informed differently. Absolutely. And, and yeah. they were obviously trained differently. The technology is, is light years behind. What 
that that statement almost creeps me out um, that you know what what are identifying characteristics of similar rapes oh, you know I know and why why do we even have to have this conversation uh, like ugh. does that mean that they were choked does that mean that could, the victims were choked in a certain way there's or, an mo I mean yeah you know uh, it, it's yeah. So shortly, um, shortly after the murder, um, numerous women came forth um, making complaints of harassment, assaults, indecent assault, um, all around the same time frame of when the murder happened, and even like some even in the same area, like a couple blocks away, a couple weeks before, um, and so they ended up collecting samples from some of the victims, um, and some of those samples were even compared to the physical evidence from Gail's rape and murder. And according to investigation files, it was noted that there was a strong connection of all the assaults and rapes to Gail's uh, attack, her, her rape and murder. So you, essentially, this is, is possibly a serial, serial woman rapist. attacker. Yep, serial rapist, for rape, sure. Raping, there's, there's all these women who, who come out and, and share a story, mm-hmm. and now suddenly you, you have one woman who's been murdered, two that were for sure raped, and then more come out and say... Yep. Yeah, this was right. So they're okay. This is it's a strong connection. So on the same day of the murder, January 31st, 1969, uh, happening simultaneously, right? David Milgard, a 16 year old teenager who had long hair and some petty theft charges, just the typical hippie kid, um, along with a couple of his pals, Ron Wilson and Nickel John, decided they decided to hop in the car and uh, road trip from Regina to Vancouver. Along the way, they were going to stop in Saskatoon and pick up their other friend, Albert Cadrain or Cadrain. And having left Regina about midnight, they pulled into Albert's house around 9 a.m. and then set out for Calgary, Alberta as their next stop. Um, and they they uh, they left for Calgary later in the day. So they, they pulled in in the morning and then left later. So enjoying their road trip and going on about their business some drugs and partying. It was 1969 after all. Uh, they returned home as normal. That's it. So Albert, uh, in, on March 2nd, 1969, Albert, the friend from Saskatoon, contacted Saskatoon police to report that, report that his friend David was acting odd and somewhat suspiciously the morning they left for Calgary, January 31st, the day of the murder. Albert even claimed that he saw blood on David's clothes. So with that hot tip, police began investigating David, interviewing his road trip friends, other friends, acquaintances, uh, to see if, if David was their guy. Uh, Ron and Nickel, two of the road trip friends, originally said that David was with them the entire morning. So David had an alibi, right? That's it. Police questioned their truthfulness, so they continued to bring them in for interviews, and both eventually changed their stories. Ron claimed that David told him specific things about the murder, and Nickel said that she actually saw the murder. So the Nickel, that was a girl? Yep, that was a girl. Oh, yep. I missed yep. that. Yep. Nickel, Nickel John. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It was really confusing because they would refer to her as John. And I'm like, what? Who the hell is John? Yeah. Yeah. So Nickel Nickel is, John is female. Is a female. Okay. Yep. Yep. Ron, Ron Wilson. He's, yeah, he's a male. So. And it's Albert who calls in the tip. Yep. Albert calls in the tip. So nearly four months after the rape and murder of Gail Miller, David Milgard was arrested and charged with that crime. David claimed he was innocent. Prior to court proceedings, police attempted to connect David to the other rapes and assaults as well, because remember, they were hell-bent that they were together. They, 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 were they connected. believed they were connected, they were so they were connected. I imagine he, he had to have been brought into some lineups and stuff. Absolutely. One, and and um, nobody could identify him. One said, one of the victims said, I've seen him before, but I don't think he was the one that raped me. 
Is this uh, is he, this a sixteen year old kid? Yeah. Is yeah. Do, do you know how, how big he was? I'm just curious. Is, was, um, was he a big dude? No, average size? Average it wasn't size. like wasn't like a huge. No, average size fella. Okay. Yeah. So having uh, the damning stories from his friends Ron and Nickel, um, things were not looking good for David. Well, and why would your I mean, yeah, and your buddies are like, yeah, he told us. That's, right. Like that's right. an effed up thing to mm. even be told. Yeah. So. Right. They should have. They should have called the cops on their buddy before the other guy. So once the once the case finally moved to trial, Nickel refused to testify that she had seen the murder, but the prosecutor was permitted to read her statement. Okay. In addition to these are all juveniles too. Uh, not not all of them. Not all of them. Oh yeah, no. juvenile law works I guess differently in Canada. Excuse me. Well, yeah, and um, and they a couple of them were were of different ages. So in addition to the 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 supposed eyewitness statement, uh, a story about David had come to light. Um, while at a party in a hotel room in May 1969, David was catching some grief about being a murder suspect, right? He'd, he'd already been been charged. So according to some partygoers, David, who was quite high at the time, began reenacting the crime that he was accused of. Like he, he was stabbing a pillow. Yeah. So it's like, oh my gosh. So this... So that comes out at that comes out at at trial and is testified by two of those partygoers. Was that before? Was he charged and released, and then he was doing that at a party while he was out? He was yep. out on bail or whatever, yep. awaiting yep. trial. Yep. He's been. They let him out on bail. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, okay. So I just wanted to be clear. This wasn't. Well, it, I'm not sure how they let him out. I, mean, yeah. I don't know about the bail part or anything like but that. But that that, that wasn't like, oh, hey, yeah, I remember partying with him like a year ago, and and, no, and this he was, was acting like he was going to murder somebody at a party. This they, is after this the murder. This is after they were giving him a hard time. Oh, what right? a, that's sick. They they were giving him a hard time, uh, you know, about being a murder suspect. So he just kind of showed them what they did. So, um. So if the if the jury, you know, if they have an eyewitness that saw the murder in progress and then the defendant supposedly um, showing people at a party how he did it, I mean, what was a jury to do, right? David Milgard was found guilty of Gail's rape and murder on January 31st, 1970, exactly one year after Gail's death. But still, David maintained his innocence. He still maintained he was innocent. So it, it and, 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 I know there's, there's maybe a little more here, but yeah, I just with he, with him being so young, that's what that's what throws mm-hmm. it off. For right, he me. was convicted at 17. Right, convicted yep. at 17, and you've got a potentially serial rapist running around town, and that's why I asked how you know how big this dude was because right. at, at 16, it seems. I don't want to say that, that juveniles aren't capable of predatory behavior. They are. It's been shown. Yep, absolutely. And, and, and yep. we, we've covered other juvenile killers on this podcast. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it, it just, it's it's a weird nuance to the story. Mm-hmm. To, it is. It is, for sure. I mean, he's so young. He's, yeah. um, so, like I said, that, that was 1970. So the year 1970 would, would bring some additional info to police, you know, but what what are they going to do with it, Right. So in September of 1970, uh, nine months after, or uh, nearly nine months after uh, David Milgard was um, found guilty, um, a Saskatoon resident, Larry Fisher, was arrested in Fort Geary, Manitoba for sexually assaulting a woman. In October of that year, he fesses up and tells the police in Fort Geary that he committed two sexual assaults earlier in Saskatoon. So when Saskatoon police get to Winnipeg, Manitoba to interview Fisher, they have four potential assaults to connect him to, right? So these are the ones in 1968. 
Um, you know, he's referring to those. Right, right, right. So on December 30th, 1970, Fisher is charged with those four assaults. Gail's murder was not one of them. Hmm. Nearly a year later, while David Milgard's application for leave to appeal is denied, Larry Fisher pled guilty to the 1968 and the 1970 assaults. He is sentenced to the penitentiary to then serve time. That... That that's that's so weird. So it, here's yeah. The, it, so the the immediate thing is okay. These they, they were hell bent that these were all connected. He confesses to two of them. Yeah. This Larry Fisher connects confesses to two of them, and then now all of a sudden there's no connection. Shame on you. And what aside from I guess because this is 1969, uh, with uh, in regards to David, they didn't they have. Only the testimony of his friends. Mm-hmm. They have no physical they, they evidence. They have no physical evidence. They, they have no the they have the semen droplets, which I'm going to get into. Okay, you know, and they have maybe a witness who first says they didn't see it, and then and they then said they, they did see it, for it and, and and yeah. and then refuse to actually testify. Right. It's it's all very fishy, and there's because there's a part of me that's like, well, maybe they should have looked at at Larry Fisher, but on the other hand, well, they, how would they know at that point? You've got two. You've got you've got the, you've got his two friends who who right. testify that he told them. So, but if but if you're hell bent on 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 connecting these, and then you're not able to connect Milgard to those assaults, but then you've got a guy who 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 confesses to those assaults, and now all of a sudden they're not they're not connected, right? It, it, it things are adding up, and it's getting it's getting weird, right? Something doesn't feel right. Sure. So prison life was difficult for David. Um, he was physically and sexually abused, um, and attempted suicide multiple times. Um, Larry Fisher who police at this point were beginning to suspect had something to do with Gail's murder. He wasn't struggling. Fisher was released from prison in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan on January 26, 1980, only to attack another victim in North Battleford, Saskatchewan, two months later. She was raped and nearly murdered. She was able to get away. And thankfully, he was not free for long. He was Larry Fisher was charged with that rape and murder, attempted murder just days later. So meanwhile, uh, David Milgard is ready to give up. He escapes prison in August and was out until November 1980, um, when he shot and when he was shot and captured by the RCMP. Wow! So was re- that the Royal Canadian Mounted, Mounted Police? Police? Yep, yep. Um, it's I, I think what, what, and that would be that would be what we consider like our state police type thing. Right, right, yeah. right. So he around in August of 1980, so he's done. He's at his wit's end. How he's, long had he been in there? Then he'd been well, in there for point, nine for, years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and still, what if he is innocent? Mm-hmm. So around the same time, Larry Fisher's ex-wife Linda voluntarily provided a written statement to Saskatoon police. She walked in there one day. Um, in in it was like middle of August walked into the Saskatoon police um, and provided a written statement stating that her ex-husband, Larry Fisher, possibly killed Gail Miller. Where do you think that info went, Jonah? The the problem here is that the police got feel like they've got their guy. They've got their witnesses. It. They were able to close a case. They were able to get the murder off the books. They're done. They're so done. my hunch, unfortunately, is 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 that the testimony, the signed statement from Larry Fisher's ex-wife doesn't mean squat. 
No, Saskatoon police did not investigate the statement or even follow up on it. At the very least, nothing. That was it. So in this statement, Linda had been fighting with Larry the day that Gail was murdered. Um, 1969, so 11 years ago, or 11 years prior to this. Okay. Um, Gail, or uh, uh, Linda and Larry had been fighting, and during the argument, the radio ran a news story about the murder of Gail. And in anger, she accused him of, of having something to do with a murder, and his reaction took her by surprise, took her back. She's like, whoa. Um, so it, it, that just stuck with her. And then she also made mention um, that they were missing a paring knife from their kitchen. Hmm. It matched somewhat, but, it, but they did not follow up on it. They did nothing with it. And that's it really, the idea that an innocent person could be, could be put away is, is really bothers me, but uh-huh. it's, it's also, now I, I, coming coming back to the the two his two friends I don't know people change their stories during I- interrogations a lot sure and is it is it because they're they're trying to hide the truth is it because they're trying to give the interrogator some truth and some lies is to try police, to navigate is it police their pressure. Is it what is it? I mean, right? Is it is it is it police pressure where where you're in a room, you're you're young in this case. I know you they, they weren't juveniles, but they're they're young, so yeah. Are you covering, covering for your buddy? Like what? I mean, yeah, exactly. Are are you are you willing to point the finger at your buddy because somehow these cops have scared you into thinking they might turn it on you. Mm-hmm. How some, somehow they're going to charge you with these, but like there's all these, these potential things. Like it's just the, the idea that Larry Fisher was, was never looked at. And I don't know, is there some form of modern DNA testing that, that could potentially um, show that that David Gil- Milgard was free. They did collect some DNA there, even though there wasn't DNA testing back in 1969-1970. You stick with me, buddy. So at this point, jo- Joyce Milgard, David's mother, she is done with the lack of fight for her son. Um, she knows that Saskatoon police did nothing. Oh, see, my my notes ended there. I thought I, know, I thought I'm we, sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, it's yeah. okay. I, I, that's um, why I was like pondering. Yeah. That's why I was pondering because I was like, well, shit. Yeah, <laughs> I gotta like, get some thoughts yeah, out like, how here. How are we? <laughs> like, yeah, sorry, I didn't give them all my notes. It's, it's okay. Um, so she's Joyce is finished. She's done. She's and she has hired attorneys and continues to do to so to fight the battle for her. And son. she is starting her own investigation. She's, this she's is about, by about this. 1980 or this, so. Um, yeah, this is this is about that same time frame. Okay. So it was at this time that she learned that David's friend in, Sask- uh, in Saskatoon, that Albert, had a basement tenant. Oh. And who do you think that tenant was? Oh. Convicted rapist Larry Fisher. Shut up. Also found out prior to this, uh, but David's friend Albert was also a police informant. He collected $2,000 for his info regarding David's alibi. Yeah. What? So all the while, I mean, Fisher at this point is then convicted yet again of that attempted murder and rape. So, I mean, it just keeps going. It keeps going on and on. So in 1986, the the facts, and I say that with quotes around them. Air quotes. Start facts. to change. 
one of the individuals that was at the same party at this hotel room where David supposedly reenacted the murder uh, swore an affidavit that the people who testified to that at the trial were lying. David shortly follows with his own sworn affidavit, David denying the allegation. So he is still maintaining his innocence. He had nothing to do with this. And now he's dead set. You know, he's, his mother is like, no, we're, we're, we're doing this. He's going for it. Um, yeah. So around the same time then, um, they, because DNA wasn't a player. So stick with me here. Cause I'm going to have to just explain a little bit here just because, um, it's, it, it can, because DNA was not a, um, a part it like, wasn't even around right well hell um, we didn't have a for for example we didn't have a crime lab in the state of north dakota until damn near 1990 exactly so, yes um, exactly this this place is go- gonna be yeah yeah so um the what was looked at at that point semen and blood were looked at by secretors or non-secretors just saying the word makes me feel icky but um so it's an icky word uh so in in simple terms a person is said to be a secretor if he or she secretes their blood type antigens into their bodily fluids like saliva mucus okay uh, semen not everybody does that though not everybody does that a non-secretor does not uh secrete their their antigens uh into those bodily fluids. So, and, and if they do, it's very, very, very little. Okay. So you can, you can take a look at bodily fluids, semen, blood, in this case, those semen droplets, those frozen semen droplets, right? Um, so the semen from the scene was from a secretor. David was a non-secretor. So at this point, you know, almost, almost 20 years later, um, they they call into question the this you know the evidence how it was collected was it contaminated no they they it is not contaminated this is this is it so um so that was a that was a that was a big part of this and and part of that's their science. their appeal that's science uh, that's investigative that's science, science. Yep. that's that's forensic science right. before dna they i this i've never heard of secretor, secretor or non secretor yep so now to 1989 so we are we are now 20 years from this murder drama continues to unfold. The individual who, who swore the affidavit from the party contradicts herself. Nickel John is questioned uh, and kind of sticks with the story of having seen David murder Gail. Um, but it's just, it's, she barely remembers some of the details. She can kind of draw out the crime scene. Um, and it's just like, Look, I, I can't remember shit from when I was 18, 19, 20 years old. That's 20, no. 20, That's 20 years, years of time ago. has passed. Come on. I don't even know what year that was. What what year? We, see, I mean, it's like, and, and now. I mean, I can tell you is, certain stories, but dude, memory just does not work no. that way. So in 1990, the RCMP has given info um, from Milgard's attorney. It was a, a, a random tip that could connect Fitch, Fisher to Gail Miller's murder. They do a little of investigation, but they do not find any evidence to link. Larry Fisher, to Gail Miller's murder. So the evidence that Milgard was a non-secretor was still not enough. It still was not enough because you've got this. You, you've got this testimony, right? So um, February nineteen. So here's the thing: is is this comes out in 1990 about the secretor versus non-secretor? It isn't until February of 1992 when it is when it is determined. You know, appropriately, right? Um, 
that's when it's finally determined. I mean, it's, it's, or investigated, I should say, pardon me, investigated. Like, come Because the, the, the conclusion of secretor versus non-secretor was brought by independent forensic analysis through David's family, right, I imagine. Right. And, and they're trying to present this to investigators who are yeah they are want still, to appeal i mean they're trying to they they're trying to appeal 20 um, years later they're they're fighting for their kid right yeah exactly they're 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 fighting they want i mean he's fighting for I, you know well i this is hard cuz I, I i just an innocent person being put away is is just it shouldn't ab- happen it's abhorrent yes um just the, and if we get it, if we get it wrong one time that's one time too many Right, you know, there, I, I, I've seen, I've seen, just, I've heard that this detective, and just, just briefly, he worked for decades in um, law enforcement in in California, and at the end of his career, uh, he 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 had done some research that undid years of false arrests and prosecutions wow. of one of his co-workers in oh. in, the, in the department and there were there was dozens of arrests that were fraudulently sure. done by this guy and um yet this was his friend and and so the question to him was well, well why did you do that this was your friend and he, he said for me i would i would rather 50 criminals got away than one wrong person, one oh, innocent man. person, be put behind you bars. Just, you took someone's innocence. You took, like, you took it, that. You took. Uh, it yeah. is, and so yeah. to hear this about David Milgram, it's very so hard. So you can you can understand I yeah. mean, why this is. So we're still we're still in 1990. Um, Ron Ron Wilson, the one who you know who um, uh, testified, um, he's saying. He then states in, in June of 1990 that he was coerced by police and he believes David Milgard is innocent. I freaking knew it, man. I, I'm sorry. I just, I felt like I there know. was coercion I know. right when, right when you were telling this story, I was like, oh, they yeah. pressured a couple juveniles. They stuck them. Okay. Sorry. So then Albert, our buddy Albert, Albert. who collected $2,000, um, says that although he was distressed by repeated police questioning, he told the truth at David Milgard's trial. He then... A week later, says he doesn't recant his trial testimony, but says he was abused by police who put the, put him through mental hell and torture. Again, I mean, come on. So then, um, so all the while, Larry Fisher still just hanging out. So he starts getting questioned a little bit on certain things. Um, he has to do a polygraph, but because of his mental and physical state, the test is garbage. Because he's old at this point, probably older. But older. Um, but he he's walking as a free man after he served his time to a yeah. point. Well, to a point. Um, he acknowledges uh, that he did in some of the the sexual assaults or the rapes. Um, he did use a paring knife, but he had nothing to do with Gail, is what he said. So, Milgard's Milgard's. Um, Milgard's uh, appeals and and applications, uh, six ninety applications. So it's it documents um, that are sent to the Department of Justice. Um, I mean, they are they are hammering this as they should. Um, in November of nineteen ninety, um, it's a, a former member of the Supreme Court of Canada um, was uh, asked by the Department of Justice to review the case um, and take a look at everything. Um, but that information never 
given to Milgard's legal counsel. So fast forward about five months later, the uh, minister of justice dismisses um, David Milgard's um, it's a, a 690 application and then six months later denies it again. So a 690 application for those of us not in Canada, um, it is, let me pull it up here. Um, so it's, it's a waiver of grounds of inadmissibility. So it's, um, it is, is my understanding of it. Um, so it's basically just another, um, uh, means of it's, uh, and more importantly, so section 690 criminal code, Canadian bar associations, submission on wrongful conviction review. So that application was denied first denied second. Um, and that, that second application was uh, based on interviews with Larry Fisher's victims. And, um, you know, I, I mean, a statement from Gail Miller's family um, that they feel that there's a reasonable doubt to the guilt of David Milgard. I, I mean, so there's the, the, so much the, coming forward. The family. The, the family. family of the victim. The family. Even said, look, we don't know if the cops got the right person. Yeah. Wow. I mean, so, I mean, there are so many... Oh my gosh, there are just so many things as I was reading this. Um, it's it's crazy. So in August of 1991, um, Larry Fisher, Larry Fisher's picture was in a newspaper article. Larry Fisher's 12th victim, one, two, 12th, says he's the guy who uh, who assaulted me. And that that statement is then sent to Milgard's legal counsel and then also the Department of Justice. I mean, so... There's so much. It's just hard to believe that all of these things are, are are like it's just being shut down. So finally, November 28th of 1991, the federal minister of justice refers Milgard's case to the Supreme Court of Canada. Finally, to have a hearing. Finally, I at this point. I'm just I'm worried to hear what the Supreme Court does. I'm like it, it's there's the uh, I, and and I don't know. Uh, you, you know, if, if, again, if David Milgard is is innocent, which presumably I don't know, it certainly yeah. seems like he was. The weirdest thing to me, Don, is is that his friend who knocked on him for the two thousand bucks was renting his basement to the to guy who murdered them. The guy, yeah, who. Yep. Probably is the real killer who yep. was a serial abuser. Yep. Like what? What the hell? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, public pressure is. Um, I mean, the media has been a, a part of this, and really, I think the media was was a, a people key, are on Milgard's side. They they were. A, a I, key I'm guessing by now. Yeah. Of 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 making this happen. Um, so it is finally, 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 April fourteenth, nineteen ninety two. The court decides. That David's conviction is gone. There's a new trial ordered. After 23 years in prison, 23, mm. David was finally a free man. They they issued a new trial. Exactly. So it wasn't over. Yeah, it that's, was not over. I was, I was like, ooh. So the crown decided. I thought an the, appeal, the, the, like the crown, at least, the courts, yeah, they decided not to retry him. So oh, okay. instead, they gave him what's called a stay of proceedings. So yes, David was was freed from prison, but his name was it was still attached to him. Oh. So they his mom, Joyce, and David What a weird set of rules. For five more years. 
five more years they fought to get his name cleared. It was not until um, they sent the 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 semen uh, or or that that profile whatever to the UK and they did DNA testing. Nineteen ninety seven. Finally, they realize that it was not David Milgard. It was Larry Fisher. It matches Larry Fisher's DNA. I'm so frustrated for this kid that I just want to cry right now. Like it gives me goosebumps. So, I mean, like what, this the, is, what kind of shitty friends did he have that just ratted on him that were so bullied by investigators? They like finally so- recanted and they apologized. Um, but you can't give back 25 years. This kid was raped and beaten in prison. Yeah. Shot, shot in an escape attempt. Yep. So, what happened? So, I mean, there's so many. Oh my gosh, there was um, pressure from the police. Um, all of these things um, that that showed the wrongdoing, the failure to look into this, you know, the the new information, regardless of whether you think you've got your guy or not. Um, uh, the the um, the polygraph operator, um, he actually um, kind of helped them make up a a, 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 a story. I, I mean, there's so much wrongdoing here. Uh, and so, I mean, so the, these, these weren't like maybe corrupt cops, but maybe shitty cops. Uh, not, uh, not, not, a, not entirely, but not entirely, some, but clearly something's not happened. Or the prosecutor, the prosecutor, like somewhere yeah. along the way, there's somebody who doesn't care enough about their job yeah. yep. to, to, to be thorough. Yep. And it, it's, it's again, we, we got our guy. We're moving on. Exactly. We've so, got our, we've got our guy. We're moving on. So he was, um, uh, Milgard was awarded uh, ten million dollars as a as a as you know as a shit sorry kind of thing. Um, that was that was it. I mean, which is thank you, but I, I feel you like know, the- he spent he spent twenty three years in 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 prison. Um, you know, abuse after abuse, uh, shot obviously while on an escape attempt. I mean, I'm sure he's you know, but but. Then had to fight even further. Um, I, I mean, they took away this guy's life. Well, the other one, you know, how how do you think the victims feel? The additional victims had they gotten Larry Fisher, he wouldn't be in. He wouldn't have been out. That's on them. Larry, Larry, Larry Fisher continued his reign of abuse and terror on yeah. women, and and that is on them. And they, and. How he wasn't. I f- the other the other problem I'm seeing here too is is not even just that we got our guy mentality. It is how often figures of authority don't want to admit they may have done, fucked up. Right? We did Maybe something they made wrong. a mistake. Maybe we made a mistake. And and I and I yeah. It's a it's it's a it's a it's a it's a problem in our society. It's a problem of humanity. Yeah. It's okay. You know, you you were wrong, and and something you know terrible things have happened to them. You got to admit, right? We should have followed. Like we didn't we didn't, we didn't do enough. Yeah, we did kind of bully and, and intimidate those kids into agreeing with what we wanted them to. Right. I mean, come on. Um, Larry Fisher was finally, finally, finally convicted of rape and murder of Gail Miller on November twenty second, nineteen ninety nine. Um, David, you know, of course, was able to go on and try to at least heal. Um, 
It's nice that he got ten. It, mil. He got ten million, and he's a he to the to this day. He is a um, uh, he is a kind of a public speaker. He he shares his story. He he um, fights. What's the moral of his of his story? I do you know? I uh, would give anything to be able to go to listen to him. I, I'd be curious. What, what, what does he find that is the moral of his story? I feel. He, I think he, it's, he, it's fighting he, for those fighting for those who have been you know are it, injustice. It is, and and it's so it's so terrible that mm-hmm. his friends kind of did that to him. He's forgiven them. Uh, I, He's I, forgiven them, but good, good for him. Good for him. I, I mean, I, I'm sure it took a, a long time, but that hurts. I yeah. love my friends a lot. Yeah. Donna, I, I close, close tell. friendships. Yeah, yeah. And he, um, so Larry Fisher um, died um, in in prison in 2015, June 10th, 2015. So he served from 1999 to 2015. He served less time for. Of a murder, he spent less that, time that he committed. He spent less time than David Milgard spent. Uh, that's a tough one to swallow, Don. I know. That's, I know. That's, so, that's hard. This one, uh, this one, um, it, and it, it, I, I had never heard the story until, of course, I mean, I, I like the song "Wheat Kings" by Tragically Hip. I had no idea that it was about. It's about associated this. with this, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful song, and um, and. Yeah. So, uh, resources for today's episode: um, Innocence Canada, the Saskatchewan government, their report of the wrongdoing, um, uh, and of course CBC News. So those are my those are my things. Fantastic. Uh, big thanks once again to Eric Michael Anderson for recording our spooky intro music. Thank you to C.J. Wynn, who uh, contributed to the dialogue for that intro. You can catch her book, Wilder Intentions, on Amazon. And to our sponsor, Nomad Design House. They designed our amazing logo. And you, too, can acquire and hire the services of Nomad Design House. Just find them on Facebook and uh, get after it. Pitter-patter. As, <laughs> as, yeah. as they say, this, guys, is Midwest Murder. Please do find us on iTunes. Give us a few minutes. Drop a rate, review, subscribe. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks.